0: look at these three words written larger than the rest with a special pride never written before or since tall words proudly say we the
1: people we could just you know do it the way it's written okay do, do you have it do you have it open yes okay and, and you'll read it when it says your name yes okay welcome to the Lex Rex institute podcast i'm your host david truchel lead writer for the Lex Rex institute
0: And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, and I'm president of the Lex Rex Institute and a constitutional attorney, although I'm not speaking in that capacity today.
1: Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute.
0: The LexRex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website LexRex.org. That's lexre org.
1: Alright, we continued to be absolutely bedeviled by the formalities of this format. Uh, we have never <laughs> once successfully done. I thought we intro got through that intro.
0: one pretty good today.
1: I I think I have to disagree, but anyway. You're not
0: going to leave in our first take on that, are you?
1: I don't think I am. No. Um, oh, good. I'm not sure what it sounds like when I do a Mickey Mouse voice, but I'm sure it's. Not it's not pleasant. great, you know. It's not yeah. pretty. Yeah. <laughs> anyway.
0: <laughs> I, if if you were Mickey Mouse, I would revoke your copyright.
1: All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> not That's, to
0: suggest my opinion on that legislation.
1: No, we debated including that topic in this podcast. We decided in the end not to, but look it up if you're interested in, uh, in that. Uh, Disney has had sort of special privileges with regard to their copyrights. They call it the Mickey
0: Mouse Law. Mm-hmm. The, the current copyright law on the books is called the, you know, colloquially, called the Mickey Mouse Law because there's, debatably, it's only on the books because the Walt Disney Corporation lobbied so strongly to get it there so they could keep Mickey Mouse.
1: But Congress is debating withdrawing that uh, extension of their copyright. And that could mean that the original version, at least, of Mickey Mouse ends up in the public domain pretty soon. But yeah, keep an eye so on that. Yeah,
0: so we'll be able to make him our logo.
1: Yeah. So that's one of the, <laughs> the otter federal laws, the Mickey Mouse law. But we're going to play a quick little guessing game about state laws. Oh, i no. called Fact or Fiction, State Law. <laughs> and
0: if, if I get them wrong, you'll cut them out so I don't look stupid, right?
1: No, absolutely not. No. I might actually oh, edit well. this to make you look dumber.
0: Please don't do that. Anyway,
1: I'm going to describe a lot. Now, I'm not going to read the exact statute. I feel like that would probably be giving it away because I'm not sure how convincingly I can mimic legalese in, the, oh, in come this on. particular kind of way. <laughs> I'm not going to read the statutes, but I'm going to describe a statute to you, and you're going to have to decide if it's real or fake.
0: These are all U.S. laws?
1: These are well state laws, but yes, all American states. So, but within states, the United States, about, yeah, we're not okay. talking about states of Germany or whatever. Because
0: else. anything goes in some of those places, so I would have no way of discerning.
1: Well, as you may find out, sometimes anything goes here. I'm going to well, tell within you within
0: constitutional th- limits. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are <laughs> these are these presently laws that are presently on the books, or at any point in history?
1: Presently on the books. Okay. So I'm going to start by telling you the state. And then I'm going to describe the statute. You have to decide if it's real or if it's fake. Beginning with New Hampshire, a law that makes it illegal to remove seaweed from a beach, but and this is crucial, only while it's dark out.
0: I think that's real. That is real. Yeah, that um, that sounds like the. There's a lot of laws like that across the country.
1: Yeah, and as it reads, if any person shall carry away or collect for the purpose of carrying away any seaweed or rockweed from the seashore below high water mark, below daylight in the that's- evening.
0: That was the only part that made me question it, because if mm-hmm. it's there, there's the issue of waters of the United States and whether or not those can be regulated, I won't get into all that. But
1: it's so another thing you debated having us talk about. We Yeah, to, is pe-
0: people keep, love their water rights. You know, that's uh-huh. how we get listeners talk about keep, water rights.
1: Keep an ear out. We may be coming back to that hot, hot topic sometime <laughs> soon. There, anyway. There's a
0: whole James Bond movie about water rights. Not one wait, of the wait, which, better which, remembered one? ones, but there was one.
1: Which one? I don't think I. Quantum of this. Solace. Oh, I, I couldn't get through that movie. I watched like 20 minutes and I got so bored I turned it off.
0: Yeah, it wasn't great.
1: No, not, not my favorite. <laughs> not
0: movie. one of his finer turnouts. No. Although probably closer to what spies actually do.
1: That's true, but that's not, I think, generally pe- why people watch James Bond movies is for the realism.
0: Certainly not why I do.
1: Fair enough. <laughs> All right. So, one down. You're one for one thus far. Second one. Massachusetts. A law prohibiting the defacing of a Bible
0: oh gee you know i i could see massachusetts passing that way back in the day i can't see that nobody's challenged that on establishment clause grounds in the 200 years since then so i'm gonna say that's not real
1: that is fake as far as i know there was never such a law. although as you mentioned it's not implausible so there could have been
0: yeah and it's as we discussed i think it was last week on the podcast massachusetts not a big fan of well, state endorsements of religion. So I'm not sure that would not. still be around, even if it had been at one point.
1: Yeah, certainly not the city of Boston. There are still a handful of the old Sabbath blue laws in Massachusetts. Those haven't all yeah. been struck, yeah, and that's down, true. Uh, struck down. But yeah, I noticed that when
0: I was there. It's, everything closes on Sunday.
1: A lot of stuff does. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the next one. We're saying state of Texas. Any device used to apply (laughs) apply a brand or other identifying mark to livestock must be made of iron.
0: I'm going to say that's, ah, gee. You know, I I can see Texas making a law like that, but you run into potential dormant commerce clause issues on it. I'm still going to say it's real.
1: That one's fake.
0: Oh, gosh. (laughs) Should have trusted my constitutional instincts.
1: Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, I, I sprinkled in a little more quasi legal ease there, brand or I- other identifying mark, hoping that would throw you off the trail a little bit. Maybe it did. <laughs> no, I, I, I,
0: regulating materials, very, very common, uh, mm-hmm. but you could argue that imposes a burden on out-of-state commerce. I don't know.
1: But. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how many people are actually using old-fashioned branding irons anyway. I'm pretty sure most people are just doing ear tags these days. But.
0: Even in Texas?
1: I think so, I, although huh. I could be wrong. I, I do not know a lot about cattle ranching. may surprise you to hear that.
0: <laughs> you, you know, it, for the Texas bar exam, you have to study oil and mineral law. Only bar exam in the country where you have to study that.
1: Interesting, but at, at least as far as the oil that comports with the image I have in my head of Texas, I've only been there like oh, yeah. twice, but it's pretty much the Beverly Hillbillies, right?
0: I think so. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. <laughs> That's.
1: <laughs> I hope nobody... None of our listeners in Texas are offended by that. I'm not sure we have any, but if we do, that was a joke. Please, (laughs) you know, don't get mad at us. All right, next up. In Indiana, a state law that prohibits liquor stores from selling cold water.
0: State law that prohibits liquor stores from selling cold water. I'm going to say that's real.
1: That is real. Yeah. So specifically... This uh, this part of the Indiana code defines what package liquor stores, as they call them, may sell, and one of the items is uncooled and uniced water. Hmm. So there you go. All you right. Can sell water, but it has to be lukewarm at best. Okay, so
0: so they've got a specific code detailing what they're allowed to sell. Yes. Huh. That's mm-hmm. an interesting way of going about that.
1: <laughs> All right. So let's see, you, you got that that one was real, correct? So thus far, you've gotten three out of the four. We've got a total of eight, so halfway there. Okay. All right. Next up, from Wisconsin, a law that mandates that apple pie served at restaurants must be served with cheese.
0: I think I've heard of that one before. And if I hadn't, I would say there's no way that's real. But because it sounds vaguely familiar, I'm going to say it's real.
1: Alright, so you, you got tripped up by that one. That one is an urban legend. It is commonly oh, reported, okay.
0: <laughs> but it is fake.
1: I think just trading on the Association of Wisconsin and cheddar.
0: I mean it sounds <laughs> absurd, and if I hadn't heard of it before, I, I would have said it's fake.
1: Yeah. But there you go. Yeah. I think just you know, people playing on perhaps unfair stereotypes about our Wisconsin brethren and their predilection for cheese. Yeah. So, next one up. And I suppose speaking of state-related stereotypes, in Louisiana, sanitary code does not apply to jambalaya as long as it is prepared using traditional methods.
0: That can't be true. That one's real. That one's real?
1: The state sanitary code does not apply to jambalaya as long as it's prepared. M-
0: most of the state sanitary codes just going to reincorporate and repeat stuff from
1: the FDA regulatory guidelines.
0: And it's yeah. you can't you can't have a carve out for your state from whatever the FDA requires.
1: Well they do throw in that nothing in this section shall be construed to allow the sale or distribution of any unwholesome food. So they're kinda of just <laughs> all to, right. you can do it <laughs> well, this particular way. They 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 specifically mention
0: I think that's gotta have zero practical effect because again, all the FDA regulations are still gonna apply.
1: I'd be I'd be curious, but they they do specifically mention some of the things that they would include under that heading of traditional methods use of iron pots wood fires and preparation in the open for service to the public
0: they ban that ordinarily no no
1: no that well i'm not sure exactly what their state sanitary code consists of but (laughs) i know that if any of it does contradict those things if you're making jambalaya you can ignore that part
0: all right well next time i'm in louisiana and making jambalaya i will keep that in mind
1: yeah all right so that's we've gone through six we got two more in Minnesota, it is a misdemeanor to organize or take part in an event in which contestants pursue a greased pig.
0: Um, I have no way. This is going to be a sheer guess for this one. I'm going to guess that's real.
1: <laughs> that is real. You can't chase a greased pig. And it, I think it included another animal sport-related concept. Let's see. Ah, it can be a pig, a chicken, or a turkey. and you cannot Okay, then. You cannot throw a chicken or turkey in the air for someone to catch. All right. That's a misdemeanor in Minnesota.
0: You know, that might be. I don't know if it's animal cruelty or not, but.
1: They felt that that they needed to spell it out one way or another. Okay. It reminds me a bit that that last part. There was a sport that. Well, I, I say sport probably doesn't deserve the name, but. In the, I think, 17th and 18th century... Yeah, okay,
0: was, you're thinking of the same thing that I am. That's. Uh,
1: the, uh, uh, what was it, badger tossing? I think badgers yeah. were the and animals. The, the yeah, and Oliver Cromwell
0: banned that, didn't he
1: In England, yes, but yeah. uh, some of the continental <laughs> nobility were very fond of this. I think Augustus the Strong of Poland and Saxony, he was Duke of Saxony, King of Poland, was apparently known to be among the best players ever of the sport of badger tossing. All right. It's pretty much what it sounds like. I would would imagine you would get ripped
0: to pieces by a badger if you tried to
1: toss it. If I remember, they had them stuffed in sacks. So it's honestly Oh, well, that's cheating. Yeah. That's, (laughs) (laughs) okay. It's just all around. There's a lot of ways we've
0: improved in the past couple hundred years, and I'd say that's one of them. Yeah. Uh, We now recognize that
1: you shouldn't put a badger <laughs> in a bag and then you, toss that, it hundreds it's of not feet. Just well, a, not hundreds, but <laughs> dozens of feet into the air using some sort of catapult system, which is what they, right. they were doing then. We whether you want to bait. call it
0: animal rights or not, I, that's language I'm not particularly fond of, but mm-hmm. certainly we no longer just allow people licensed to treat animals however the heck they please.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So last one. And let me... Let me run down. I think you've got, so far... Correct, correct. About incorrect. half. I think I have an incorrect. F at this point. Incorrect, incorrect, incorrect. <laughs> correct. Yeah, I, I think you've got four right and three wrong thus far. Somebody yeah, that sounds about right. Closer attention can So if us, I want a I
0: passing grade, I have to get the last one right.
1: Yeah, if you get this last one, I, I'd say you, you've passed the quiz. Otherwise... Unless,
0: unless they... Do you grade on a curve?
1: Well, it's just you, so no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, well.
1: Alright, last one up. And this... This may put some of our listeners in mind of our first episode. In Oklahoma, they declared by statute that there is an international communist conspiracy to overthrow the federal and state governments.
0: This is, this is just a statutory proclamation?
1: Yes, it's a, a law by which the government of Oklahoma declared that this is true.
0: Okay, um, that probably happened.
1: That's correct, that's a real one. Yeah,
0: <laughs> all right. Is, is that in their code, or is it just that mm-hmm. that was a... Okay. I don't yep. know why you'd incorporate that into the code.
1: Title 21-1266.1, upon evidence and proof already presented before this legislature, and then blah, 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 basically, uh. international communist conspiracy. So right. that is so you can't deny that in Oklahoma. That is
0: that is No, it's not that you can't deny it. It's that or, it's legally the case. <laughs> yeah. You're allowed say, to or, deny or, the truth, but that is legally true. In Oklahoma.
1: Well, you didn't let me finish. I was going to say, or face (laughs) no penalty, but, you know, not agree with existing state law.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I don't think you're doing anything illegal if you disagree with what has been proclaimed to be thus. It's just
1: that you're wrong. You're legally wrong. (laughs) Yeah. At variance (laughs) with an element. And I guess that means if you chose to engage in a debate with your friends and they challenge you to prove this, well, you could say, well, it's law. (laughs)
0: That's about the only reason I can imagine <laughs> to pass such a law, actually, which I'm not going to say is an invalid legislative purpose.
1: I, I like to imagine that uh, like an Oklahoma state senator got into an argument at a bar one night and somebody was like, I don't believe you. There's no way there's an international communist. Conspiracy well, how do you how thought, do you prove? Consp- I'm going to settle consp- this.
0: Consp- yeah, you know, <laughs> conspiracy is notoriously the most difficult thing to prove mm-hmm. because it's almost entirely circumstantial almost all the time. So now in Oklahoma, it's actually very easy to prove. At least yep. in terms of the communist conspiracy.
1: <laughs> so there you go. All right. So I think we can give you a passing grade on that then. I think you got to do might Good embarrassed myself eight, too badly. But uh, <laughs> you know let's let's not quibble, I guess. Yeah. All right. So with that out of the way, that extremely enlightening <laughs> yeah. segment. Now, lawyers
0: know a lot of common law rules. We know a lot of cases, but you know, the minutiae of statutory law between all the different states, there's just no reason to memorize that. You can look it up.
1: Thank you for finding a way to convert this <laughs> into a point about law in general. That's, uh, yes. Let's, let's pretend that's what we were trying to prove here, is that state law is very different from the, often very different, I should say, from the sorts of things you actually need to know to be a lawyer. So, for any of at least state statutory may, law. Yeah, any of our any of our listeners who may be considering law school, if you were thinking about trying to memorize your state's code, don't.
0: Yeah, you won't get much benefit out
1: of that in <laughs> law school. <laughs> All right, with that out of the way, we're. going to Other than talk maybe about, in Louisiana. Oh, that's a good point. But listeners who want to know about that should listen to last week's, the week before's. No, All the of first them, because we don't
0: remember which one it's in.
1: I think it was the first episode we <laughs> talked about Louisiana.
0: Just start from the beginning and listen to all of them.
1: Yeah, sure. There's not that many so far. You can do it.
0: Yeah. Okay. It's an afternoon. You can finish all of them.
1: I'm not up. sure I can in good conscience recommend you do that, but if you feel so compelled, I can. All right. Fair enough. Anyway, let's get into some news, though. And this one, now this next one, I know basically just what you told me, which was not a lot. I know you were eager to talk about this one. We talked about it previously, but there's new developments in the Congressional January 6th Committee. So why don't you yeah. take away?
0: So uh, actually, uh, our team. So I'm working on behalf of John Eastman in that case. I think I mentioned last week that that's the, that I'm doing that, and we filed a brief yesterday in that case, which you can go online and read. Uh, we'll provide. I don't know. Can we provide the URL to that in the description for this episode?
1: Probably. If I okay, remember.
0: we'll we'll do that. Uh, but anyway, evidence of the, the allegations that Trump's team and that Eastman were making with respect to the election are finally being heard before the court, essentially because Congress invited those allegations to be heard. You know, they made all kinds of representations about testimony they'd taken in sealed depositions that they wouldn't allow us to access and wouldn't allow us to read. They give cherry-picked examples from those, and we responded with our evidence. Sure, that's all fine. Uh, The part that I found particularly amusing is that Eastman's whole dispute, for those of you who don't know what it's about, ostensibly it's a dispute over the production of documents and records. And Eastman has claimed over most of those documents attorney-client privilege because he was working on behalf of Donald Trump. And as Donald Trump was his client, that makes communications with Donald Trump and with other parties relating to the representation of Donald Trump subject to that privilege. Uh, things you know anything produced for litigation is subject to the work product privilege so those two privileges are the main ones that would apply to all of those communications obviously the house january 6th committee they want those documents very badly because they i guess don't particularly enjoy conducting depositions and want john eastman to do the work of providing their evidence for them so they've said no we got to give them to us anyway work product privilege doesn't apply the hilarious thing is that last week the doj requested some of these sealed documents from the house january 6th committee well what does bernie thompson head of the house january 6th committee say we can't give them to you they're subject to work product privilege I found that amusing. But anyway, that that case is evolving. We've got got an article about that case on our website. We'll link that in our description as well. I'm not going to go into too much detail about what's going on there since that is a live case in active litigation, but the Lex Rex Institute's involved on that. And if you want to stay updated, follow our website for updates. And while we're on the subject of things that Lex Rex Institute's currently working on, I just wanted to make a quick announcement to anybody out there who may know people in civic government in the state of California. Because recently a bill was enacted by our legislature called SB-9. For those of you familiar with the bill, I think you already know the basics. For those who don't, basically what it does is it allows people who own single family residences to subdivide those residences and then rent up to two properties on each of the subdivisions. A lot of people are very concerned about this because they think it's gonna fundamentally transform the character of of neighborhoods that have single-family residences, they think that large commercial investors are going to buy up residential property, things like that. And basically, you know, the concern is that the state government is forcing cities to do things their way, whether or not it works for different cities. Well, Lex Rex Institute is currently in the process of developing a program for cities that are looking for ways to carve out exceptions for for them. You know, ways that they can make SB nine work for them, and that's a program we're currently developing. It's going to be a comprehensive set of recommendations and proposed laws for cities who are interested in pursuing that. So if anybody knows people in municipal government, send them our way. We do have hope. You know, we can help you out if you're worried about SB9. I'm sure you folks will hear a lot more about our SB9 project as developments come, but just be aware, hope is on the horizon.
1: Now, some of you may be following us on Facebook, and if you're not, well, shame on you.
0: You should be. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, who, who's on Facebook anymore? The only reason to be on Facebook is to follow us.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> like, I actually
0: don't even know what social media is popular now. I've just heard that kids don't like Facebook.
1: Kids don't like Facebook. That's true. I think Twitter is for people TikTok? of our generation is for it? the most part. TikTok you know, TikTok's but I, is pretty
0: popular now.
1: Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It's just, it all seems bad to me. I don't isn't know. It, that
0: one's owned by the Chinese, isn't it? That's just a way for the Chinese to spy on kids in America?
1: I That may be a slightly loaded way of putting it, but I, I think it's that <laughs> really? Chinese-owned, that's true.
0: <laughs> anyway. Anyway, don't don't let the Chinese spy on your Okay. Oh, we didn't give our disclaimer that none of this constitutes legal advice, did we?
1: Yes, we did. It's part of the intro. Oh, good. Good.
0: Yeah. Well... In that case, I can say don't let the Chinese spy on your kids.
1: Yeah. What we didn't say in which we did say last time, perhaps should say again, is it's just a bad idea in general to take legal advice from a podcast, no matter who's podcasting or what they're saying. So yeah, don't do that.
0: If, if, you know, if you get in court and you say, Hey, your honor, a podcast told me so I that best case scenario, he will look upon you with pity as a a poor fool who trusted a podcast (laughs) worst case scenario you'll go to jail
1: i would say yeah and in between maybe you'll get a judge who doesn't know what a podcast is and assumes that and you'll
0: have to explain it no that's your worst case scenario
1: (laughs) oh fair fair (laughs) that's a good point yeah actually if you have to oh man just thinking about having to try to explain to like a you know 50 to 70 year old judge what a podcast is (laughs) and just feeling the like confusion and concern radiating from how
0: does one live on a flicker of light (laughs) (laughs) anyway that's a star trek reference for
1: for those who do follow us on on (laughs) facebook you may have noticed that we posted two very similar stories in pretty quick succession and we thought it was a, a significant enough convergence that it bears talking about here. But two separate decisions that were handed down recently, one from the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court and the other from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, Federal Appeals Court. But basically both Ninth of Ninth Circuit
0: is going to be the Western states.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. The case comes from, I think, San Francisco, somewhere in Northern California at any rate. But both instances where... The court on appeal called for a retrial due to due process violations arising out of lower courts imposing COVID-19 restrictions.
0: Yeah, so ba- basically said that the, the first trial these people had received was not valid. It was procedurally defective, so much so that they had to be retried.
1: Yeah. Now, both of them I thought were interesting in how they actually played out, the Massachusetts case came from juvenile court, which is basically family court for minors.
0: And these were these were both just to give some context. These were both COVID nineteen related alterations yeah. to the yeah. uh, to judicial procedure. So I, I think most people probably know this, but COVID nineteen changed people's lives in a lot of ways. I I think people probably know that at this point. Uh, A lot of people couldn't go into work and so on and so forth. Uh, That was true of judges and courts for a little while, too. Hearings all moved online. Uh, You had to deal with some of the worst, most technologically inept people probably on the planet doing everything over Zoom. I I will never forget my very first Zoom hearing. Uh, It was a case that had very complicated case, probably about 60 parties were in it, and they were all on this Zoom meeting. And the instructions that had been issued said that if you wanted to speak, you were supposed to raise your hand, press the button to raise your hand, and then somebody would unmute you, whether it was the clerk of the court or the judge himself, it wasn't clear. But the judge starts going through the calendar, going through, you know, here's a motion that's been proposed. Is there anybody opposed to this motion? And then he would sit there for a few seconds. And if you looked up at his screen, he would see that there were about 20 windows with people frantically waving their hands at him, trying to get his attention. But he would just say, do I hear anybody opposed to the motion? Hearing no opposition, the motion is approved. And then he would move to the next thing on the calendar. And he kept doing that for about you know 20 or 30 items oh, until finally, actually, my client somehow managed to call into his chambers and get a hold of a clerk there, and the clerk rushes into the courtroom and alerts the judge, hey, there's all these people on this hearing that want to have their cases heard. But that was one of the most nerve-wracking experiences I've had. court. You'd think, you know, doing things remotely is a lot less nerve-wracking. Well, not always. It's kind of nerve-wrecking to just sit there and watch your client's rights evaporate before your eyes with nothing you could do about it.
1: I can believe that. And that's... But he, very... he did end up
0: doubling back to the top of the calendar and going over it again. But anyway, all that to say, yeah. I'm familiar with procedural deficiencies from COVID-19. So go on, David.
1: Yeah, that, that actually sounds pretty similar to the first instance, which was the Massachusetts case. The way the original trial went was this woman had her parental rights over her child terminated as a result of this trial. And... Among other she things... She lost her...
0: Ch- so my client was only worried about money. This person's yeah. losing their kids because of them.
1: Yeah. Among other things, you know, the, the high court's opinion noted, it, I think this is almost verbatim, it became clear she had not been provided with instructions on how to use video teleconferencing technology. So to begin with, oh my nobody gosh. explained how she was supposed to do this. It, very quickly became clear, apparently, that she wasn't going to have a stable enough connection to actually use video conferencing. So in her description, she ended up driving around the city of Boston, I believe, trying to find a cell phone signal strong enough to just keep telephone communication going.
0: Wasn't That's like able... a nightmare.
1: Oh, yeah. Wasn't able to hear That's horrific. more than a few minutes of key witness testimony. And apparently it was bad enough that when it came to her turn to cross-examine a witness, she was representing herself in this case. She hmm. basically gave up out of frustration at not being able to make herself heard. And yeah, it, the stakes could so, not be so higher in that case.
0: She lost clear, Clearly, this person's, if they're representing themselves in this, clearly this is not a wealthy person. Yeah. Do you know how this was brought to appeal?
1: I don't. I didn't get a lot of the detail on this. Yeah. I think it, so the...
0: Because it's, it's, hey, you really shouldn't ever represent yourself prosé? I i don't recommend that at all but especially at the appellate level i i can't imagine a prosé person being able to draft an appellate brief that would actually convince yeah. the court
1: i'm i'm guessing in purely a guess that she probably did get representation for the appeal but
0: yeah well probably somebody like the lex rex institute that's looking for people whose rights have been infringed and helping them out for free
1: yeah but Which the, is,
0: you know, just to tell you guys, that's why what we do is important. Yeah. Because no, this person's one. child, this person would have lost her child and not gotten the child back, despite no fair due process, mm-hmm. if there hadn't been somebody willing to take her case on appeal.
1: Yeah. And I recall, I do remember, the original trial was held in September of 2020. This decision to grant a retrial didn't come down until a few weeks ago. So oh My gosh. So where's the kid been in the, the year, meantime? I assume either with, you know, another parent, different relative, whoever, you know, was disputing custody, perhaps, or as a ward of the state. I'm not sure. Well, uh, and it
0: likely took her a while to get new counsel. Yeah. Uh, if if Lex Rex had been counsel on that, I, we would have been filing motions to expedite all the proceedings. That's tragic.
1: God. Yeah. So that one, very rough. And, you know, who knows what the outcome of the new trial will be, but it's whether or not she would have won the first time around. She deserved a fair shake at it and yeah. didn't get one.
0: Well, and she deserved to be able to keep her child until she had lost fairly.
1: Yeah. Yep. Whether and, or not
0: it was fair for her to lose, I don't know.
1: Yeah. So the, the the second case, the more recent one, the Ninth Circuit case, So this was federal. The circumstances are a little less tragic, but it's a strikingly similar case where a man who was brought this up This one's on, about
0: getting your guns taken away.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure we can compare we can quite compare that to law. Oh, I'm, I'm, no, I no
0: I'm just but, saying that's also very important, not as important. no, but also it's, it's very important.
1: Important, somewhat less emotionally devastating, I think we can assume. but in this instance, the judge in his original trial ruled not only that in-person appearances were out, which as you mentioned, lots of courts were doing that that seems to have been virtually all of them more or less standard. But also ruled that... Yeah, I
0: I didn't have any in-person hearings for, I think, over a year.
1: Yeah, not surprising. But in this case, the judge also ruled that they wouldn't allow video communication out of the concern that someone might theoretically record it. And so... Uh,
0: That sounds like the sort of thing that a judge would order. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow it's easier to record video than audio.
1: (laughs) So he ordered only telephonic communication despite the objections of the defendant at the time. I believe specifically it pertained to a suppression hearing and one other phase of the trial as well.
0: Trying to take away somebody's guns, right?
1: Yeah. Or, you know, I think more particularly defending criminal charges pertaining to illegal possession of guns.
0: Oh, okay, so it was a criminal proceeding for unlawful possession of a firearm.
1: I I believe that's the case, yes. Okay. But at any rate, and I, I thought this was... An interesting result the appeals court ruled that the court did have the original court did have a compelling interest in preventing COVID exposure so fine to take measures
0: but so they gave this strict scrutiny
1: I actually am not sure about that
0: when you when you refer to a compelling interest that's strict scrutiny language
1: okay I could be interpolating the term compelling I, I, I,
0: I have not read these cases so I don't yeah. know
1: let, let me see I think I have this one open on my uh, browser I couldn't check here Overriding interest, it says. Okay. I'm not sure what that would translate. We don't know to. then. But. Okay. <laughs> but that, oh, actually, this might, I don't remember offhand what the language of narrowly tailored corresponds to. That's that, strict scrutiny as well. That's that strict scrutiny. Okay. So then they did yeah. grant it strict scrutiny. They okay. found that this solution, telephonic only, was not narrowly tailored and that it ultimately deprived him, the defendant, of the right to a public trial. Because yeah, which it makes a it, lot of sense. Yeah, impossible for anyone to participate other than the parties, the attorneys and witnesses.
0: Yeah, and, and that ruling, I think, makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. sure, you can say that they have a valid interest in preventing the COVID, spread of COVID-19, but there's no reason to ban video to do that. That's not, again, yeah. it's not narrowly tailored. There are other ways of accomplishing that purpose. Right. So they didn't, interestingly, they didn't say that he had a valid interest or certainly not a compelling interest in preventing videos from being recorded?
1: Not from what I saw. I didn't read the entire opinion, but I didn't see anything <clears throat> excuse me. I didn't see anything about that in what I read of the opinion or in the reporting about it.:
0: I would say that it's not tailored to accomplish that at all, whether narrowly or otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's easier to record audio than video. You just it, use a voice recorder.
1: mm-hmm. You don't even need to know
0: how to use the demon box.
1: (laughs) That's a reference. You can listen to past episodes if you don't. I
0: don't remember which one, so you got to listen to them all.
1: (laughs) Are we going to say that about literally everything?
0: Only where we don't remember which episode it's from.
1: Okay. Wink, wink. Um, (laughs) To me, though, this was just, in both instances, a timely reminder that procedural rules really do matter tremendously. They are important. It is not something yeah. you can just sort of do by the seat of your pants, even in sort of emergency conditions. And both of these, you know, were responses to COVID's outbreak reasonably early, I think, in in the pandemic yeah. for both of them. So before And pe- people
0: weren't sure what to do for right. the longest time. And that's I'm not saying that to excuse the decisions they made. No. Because the reason why we have written in law various standards for, you know, anything in the law is not for when it's easy to apply those standards. It's for precisely those situations where other kinds of pressure push against having those standards. Exactly. If people just did what they thought was reasonable or sensible all the time, there's no reason to ever have a written standard for something. The reason you write it down is for the situations where it may not appear reasonable at first blush to do it.
1: Was it Madison... Who said that if men were angels, there would be no need for government. Yeah. Similarly, yes, that was Madison. everyone was perfectly reasonable, there would be no need for written rules.
0: That's, that's absolutely true. And, and you know, I, I think sometimes issues of procedural justice tend to get overlooked. Uh, we tend to care a lot more about when somebody loses an important right or, you know, like maybe abuse of discretion by some government agent. Yeah. But I would argue that procedural abuses are actually far more egregious than any of those kinds of things, because procedure is what guarantees that when something does go wrong, we can get it sorted out anyway. I've heard it said, and I I agree with this, even though it's a little bit circular, but I agree with this, that (laughs) that which is derived from just means is just. The way that you can trust an outcome is to look at how we got here, see that we did everything properly and by the book, and that we arrived at this conclusion. Because, you know, on every legal dispute, somebody's gotta lose, right? I mean, you can never, you can't always, well, even in the Solomon solution, somebody lost, but you can't always have the solution where you're you're exactly evenly dividing the spoils. And if you were to do that, that would be unjust in a lot of circumstances. Somebody's gotta lose. Well, the thing that makes our system work is when the person who loses know they got a fair shake anyway. And the only way that you can have that is to make sure that proper procedure is followed.
1: Yeah, and we we talked about this. I'm virtually certain it was last time, but, you know, 1% not sure. So listen to all the episodes again.
0: (laughs) That that might be a bad faith reading of what I said earlier.
1: (laughs) But one of the main things you're looking for, in some instances, perhaps the main thing you're looking for in a system of law is consistency. And one of the best ways to ensure consistency is to have a prescribed means of going about doing different things. Repeat the steps, you should come to at least similar results.
0: Well, having prior notice and fair warning of the law's demands is one of the primary protections of liberty. I mean, it's like the, the Emperor Caligula famously published his laws in a hand so small and posted on a place on the wall so high that nobody could read it because that way people couldn't have fair notice of the law's demands and he could punish them for anything. Mm -hmm. Well, those sorts of procedural requirements in the law are your fair notice.
1: Well, and as we're reminded here, they apply to judges too, not just to ordinary people.
0: Well, and if you don't have that, you're enabling tyranny. I mean, really, that's the very essence of tyranny, is arbitrary use of power, unbounded by external restraints.
1: And speaking of administrative courts, Let's. Uh, let's transition.
0: <laughs> that's brilliant transition, David. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> now I'm not. You know, you may have heard me imply that administrative courts are the same as tyranny. I did not say that. <laughs> but let's get, let's go on to our main topic this week, which is. He also
0: didn't say they're not.
1: That's true. I I, <laughs> I took neither stand. I plead the fifth. Let's just leave it at that. I plead the fifth. <laughs> Our main topic for this week, which is a decision that was just handed down, I think, two days ago, something like that, very recently. Yeah, and so, this is
0: huge, by the way.
1: Yeah, it, we weren't originally going to talk about this, A, because it hadn't we, happened We revised
0: yet. our entire program to talk about this because this is, frankly, particularly with, with, with Lex Rex's focus, the focus that we have on the structural aspects of the Constitution, this is one of the most significant decisions of the past several decades.
1: I, I think that's not an overstatement, and we'll clarify. This was not a Supreme Court decision. This was another Circuit Court decision. But a, it's huge on its own, and
0: I'll, I'll mention this more in a bit. But you saw that the only way they reached their conclusion was to rely on the Gundy case. Mm-hmm. That's that's a case that I worked on, so I'm very <laughs> proud. But <laughs> yeah,
1: but B, I think their reasoning here lines up very closely with what some of the recent talk from the Supreme Court has revolved around as well, and we'll get into that. Like the Gundy case. Yep.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's because, that, see, so <laughs> I, we should just say what the issue is first. Yeah, so yeah. the case is, is Jarksy, Jarksy? Jarksy the or Jarkesey, I'm not
1: something sure. Something like that. Not sure how to pronounce uh, v, it. We didn't listen to v the on Security audio. We, and we Exchange Commission. Yeah. Sorry, so, what's that? I, I said we, we did not listen to any audio of this. We've just read about it. Forgive yes. us for any mispronunciations. Yeah, it's a weird name, some,
0: some J name versus the Security and Exchange Commission. Yeah. And this case pertains to a, what was until quite recently, seldom referenced doctrine called non-delegation doctrine, which is basically yeah. just a fancy legal way of referring to the separation of powers. Congress has got to stay in its lane. And the executive's got to stay in its lane. So we, I mentioned last week, you know, we talked about what Congress is supposed to do. We talked about what the court's supposed to do. I said, maybe next week we'll talk about what the executive's supposed to do. Well, sure enough, that's what we're going to talk about today. Because At least in part. <laughs> what this case has to do with is when Congress passes a law that illegally gives essentially too much of its power to the executive and enables the executive to engage in lawmaking. We call that delegation of power. And it is always illegal, unconstitutional for Congress to delegate its power. (laughs) Actually, when I was studying for the bar exam, which was not too long ago, the generally accepted wisdom, what was taught to us in actually the bar review, Erwin Chemerinsky taught it. I've mentioned him before. He's a leading constitutional scholar on the living constitution side of the debate. But he actually mentioned in his lecture Non-delegation doctrine is never the right answer. It never applies. You don't need to worry about it. That has significantly changed over the past few years, culminating, at least to date, although we hope this goes further, but culminating in this Fifth Circuit case. Yep. Now, I had the privilege and the honor of drafting the brief on behalf of the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence in that case, in the Gundy case. And that was the first case to be heard since prior to the New Deal era, in which the court had granted cert on non-delegation issues. And that case ended up being one that we won. It was about whether or not uh, the provisions of SORNA allowed the executive to just basically, on its own authority, decide whether or not they were going to retroactively apply sex offender status to various people. We won on that case saying they couldn't do that. So now non-delegation is a live, ripe issue for courts to look at. And finally, we're getting rulings on it. So, let's talk about that ruling that was just <laughs> issued by the Fifth Circuit.
1: One of the things I want to clarify, just because it could sound a little off to people listening, when we say Congress can't delegate its power, that does not mean it can't cooperate with executive agencies in any capacity.
0: They can. Well, they're they're free to give executive agencies even rulemaking authority. You know, that's what regulations are. Mm-hmm. It. The word delegation has a specific meaning within the law. Basically, if Congress gives lawmaking power to the executive, the question is whether or not we consider that a delegation. And if it is a delegation, then it's unconstitutional is sort of the way that the terminology works on that.
1: Right. And sort of rule of thumb, why don't you go into ways that you would determine that? Like, how how would you distinguish between just sort of empowering an agency to do certain things versus unconstitutional delegation
0: well the accepted traditional test is whether or not there is an intelligible principle to guide the executive agency in its rulemaking capacity mm-hmm. let's before we get into too much of that do people know what executive agencies are like is this an issue that most people are familiar with do you think
1: I think on a certain level probably yes but it, it probably wouldn't hurt to to just give the crash course
0: so th- there are only three things in our government, right? In our federal government. Yeah. There's Article 1, which is the, the legislative branch. That's two houses of Congress, Senate, House of Representatives. There's Article 3. That's the courts. So the Supreme Court and all the inferior federal courts, which Congress shall ordain to establish. And then there's Article 2. That's the president and the vice president. That's all there is in the federal government.
1: In, in one sense, yes.
0: <laughs> no, that's all there is in the federal government. So what's the FDA? What's the CDC? What's the SEC? What's the, all these alphabet agencies, the FBI, the CIA, you know, you could literally, if you pick three letters at random, if you got one of those like lottery machines that had letters in it, you pick three letters at random, there's probably a federal agency with that name. So what the heck are these? These aren't one of the three branches of government. What are they? Well, at least in theory, All of those exist under the authority of the executive. The president is the boss of every single person that works at any of those agencies. Well, why does the president get to do that? Why why is he allowed to be their boss? Well, that falls to Congress. So Congress passes a law saying, we think that that Upton Sinclair book was really, really scary. And we don't want people's fingers to be in sausages anymore. So we're going to regulate the safety and health standards for everybody's food. What?
1: I said he means the jungle. That's the name of that book.
0: Yes. So we're going to regulate health and safety for everybody's food. And to do that, we're going to create an executive agency, an agency under the power of the president, that will act with the president's authority as empowered by Congress to proliferate rules and regulations to ensure that there are no fingers in sausages anymore. Yeah. And if they said that, if they said we want no more fingers in sausages, make whatever rules you can to prevent that— that would probably be an intelligible principle, and they would say that the you know they are duly empowered to be able to create such laws. That's the way that works. The ve- well, and, and you can already see some of the problems that would arise from this. At least I hope you can see some of the problems that would arise from this.
1: Yeah, and so we've seen even before this case, we've seen a little more. I think willingness from the Supreme Court, in particular, to sort of challenge some of the grants of power to the agencies. But that was the
0: Gundy case.
1: Yeah. That, that's true. I have in mind even more, particularly in in recently the OSHA case that yes. came before the Supreme Court recently,
0: which also cited Gundy.
1: Yeah, and so I'm going to keep case, plugging that, David. Yeah, <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. In that case, the Biden administration wanted to act through OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety Hazard Administration. So basically the agency that's in charge of workplace hazards to impose a requirement. So on they, they care orders.
0: more about the workers than the sausages, but they also <laughs> don't want the fingers to get in the sausages.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I, I think, yeah, you can argue that fingers and sausages is probably a problem for multiple reasons. But anyway, in at this least, case, the, At least OSHA,
0: several executive agencies will try to convince you that it is.
1: Yeah, OSHA... <laughs> not to I, say I that like it's not but. Um, OSHA would be concerned about whether or not how we need to, more than
0: one agency to regulate that I don't know but
1: yeah OSHA in this <laughs> in that case the fingers in, in sausages case would be concerned about how to stop workers from getting hurt such that their fingers come off and end up in sausages but yes the Biden administration wanted to act through OSHA to impose a scheme for large employers i believe more than 100 employees to either require their workers to be vaccinated or to be tested weekly for COVID-19. And this ended up before the Supreme Court. It was challenged. They ended up ruling against OSHA in this case. And one of the key reasons was that they said, your mandate is to cover workplace hazards. Now, just because you could get COVID at work doesn't make that a workplace hazard. It's, it's, it's not, not specific to yeah. a workplace. It's you can not, get COVID anywhere. Right. It's not a hazard at the workplace because it's work related. It's just a so, hazard from being around people, no matter where or that, why. You're that's doing a that.
0: slightly different issue. I mean, it's, it, that's also executive abuse of power, but that's the issue in the SEC case that we're currently looking at is one in which Congress tried to give them a particular power. And the court yep. said, no, you've gone too far. You can't hand that over. The the OSHA case was one in which Congress had not empowered them to do what they were doing. They yeah. just started doing it on now, their own.
1: That's true. There were rumblings in the opinion of the court on that case that they may have granted too much yeah. to OSHA to begin with but that wasn't that, that's particularly fair that, that was not actually the the ruling in that in that opinion
0: particularly justices Thomas and Gorsuch have been very receptive to this non delegation sort of argument yeah. And, and that's really, as I mentioned earlier, non-delegation is really just the idea of separation of powers, which if you've watched any of our content, you know that is the cornerstone of the Constitution. Separation Absolutely. of powers and federalism are basically what our Constitution is all about. You know, the, the fundamental theory of our Constitution, the thing that undergirds the entire thing, is the idea that you should never have too much power resting in any one set of hands and the way they protect that is by strictly delimiting who has which powers. So when Congress starts just pushing away all of their power and giving it to somebody else, specifically these executive agencies, they've undermined the entire structure of the constitution and frankly the re- why can't they do that? Well, it's not their power to give away. Yeah. It's ours. Yep. It's we the people. We own that power. And we said that Congress is allowed to exercise that power, not the executive. The executive has very different powers. And you know I think sort of the reasons why you wouldn't want the executive to exercise legislative power ought to be really obvious. For one thing, Congress is designed to be very slow, right? Yeah. I mean, we've got like there's the famous story of when Thomas Jefferson came back from France after the Constitution had been ratified. And he was talking with Thomas, talking with a uh, George Washington, I have no idea if this story is true or not, but it's entered the popular mindset anyway. But talking to George Washington, and he asks, why do we have two houses of Congress? Why is there a house and a Senate? And then Washington asked him, he said, well, why did you pour tea from your cup into your saucer? And Jefferson says, why to cool it? Mm -hmm. And Washington says, same answer. Yeah, because if something has to go through two houses of Congress in order to become law and then also get signed by the president, there's a lot of procedural hurdles. And what does that do? Well, that creates a lot of power to minority groups because it becomes very easy for even a small group to really throw a wrench into the gears of legislation. Yeah, the in, president. Yeah. Sorry, I've been talking I'm monologuing for no, a while here. I was
1: just going to say. I think to some people that probably doesn't sound great, but you have to bear in mind that's not a bug, that's a feature. There's a reason it's set up yeah. that way. <laughs> anything that could end up with you being imprisoned, which you know obviously laws can, you probably want to make sure it was as carefully considered as it could be, and that's one. Of the or even just
0: taking that. your stuff. Yeah. And you want no, to make sure true that true. as many people's voices are heard as possible. You know, the yeah. president is usually elected on pretty broad social issues. They don't have this, the more minute, specific concerns that a lot of times members of the House of Representatives will. But more significantly, you know, Hamilton mentions in Federalist Seventy that the executive needs to be energetic is the word that he uses. Yeah. Well, what does that It means that the executive has to be able to do things quickly. Mm-hmm. So what happens when you pass lawmaking authority from a body that is designed to be slow and deliberative and to weigh a variety of concerns from bunch of different groups of people, and you pass that to somebody designed to be energetic.
1: You could end up... Well, for up one thing, you
0: get a whole lot more law.
1: I was going to say, you could end up with too many <laughs> laws, and that's yeah, debatably I, I that's will something ne- we deal with.
0: <laughs> I'll never forget, uh, when when I was learning legal research in law school, they they passed around... Most legal research is done on the internet now, but they passed around Westlaw and various... Subscriptions, but they passed around the yep. actual physical copy of the Federal Register, and they said Federal Register is all the laws that were created in the past year, all, all of the new regulations, all the new things that were created by executive agencies, Article Two agencies, what we've been talking about, and they pass it around. And I'm looking at it; it's like a few rows ahead of me. It's about two and a half inches thick, I think. You know, relatively large pages, and I think, boy, that's a lot of laws, but it's actually not that many considering how many new regulations I think we'd proliferate in the new year. And then it gets to me. I look at the spine. Volume one of 247.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So almost one of the, not quite, but like almost one of these a day. One every, like yeah. 1.5 days, I guess.
1: Yeah, just about. <laughs> Don't check our math.
0: That's a lot of new laws.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and that's because the executive's making them.
1: Yeah. And this is, I think, something that's true in general, about the current state of the federal government. I think a lot of people like the idea, in broad strokes, of having experts set up guidance, set up rules for how certain things are supposed to go. You want somebody who knows a lot about medicine to make the rules about medicine. You want somebody who knows a lot about food safety to make the rules for food safety. That sort of thing. I think Do you want the a-
0: Hershey Corporation to make laws about chocolate <laughs> or the Heinz Corporation to make laws about ketchup.
1: Well, you're getting they're you're the getting experts a little, in making those things. You're getting a little ahead of me. That's <laughs> that's something well, maybe we'll talk about that some other day. That's something called regulatory capture.
0: But but if, if you look at the majority of our regulations are particularly for food and drugs and that sort of thing are all labeling requirements. Yeah. And it's it's almost always some large corporation that's providing the information to the executive agency saying that you know dark chocolate should be defined the way that we well, make it <laughs> Hershey corporation already makes dark chocolate yeah. and anything that isn't that exact proportion they shouldn't be allowed to call that dark chocolate
1: yeah because that's not real dark chocolate that's you know semi dark chocolate or double or, dark chocolate and, and
0: or. if you get or if you make ketchup that's a little bit too runny
1: uh-huh.
0: that's a crime mm-hmm that's not just prohibited by regulation. That's a crime. You are a criminal. You will go to jail if you make something that is too runny and you call it ketchup.
1: Yeah. It's tomato, condiment, sauce.
0: Now, you, you can say the public's got an interest in that law, but I think it's much more plausible that the Hershey, the Hershey that the Heinz Corporation has an interest in that law.
1: Yeah, anyway, that's certainly true. And we'll probably find some opportunity to talk about that in greater detail. One of the things I think that happens, though, is uh, you may have heard the expression main character syndrome. And if not, you might be able to guess what that means. But basically, I think people have a tendency to think of themselves as the, you know, the, the center protagonist of,
0: the of reality.
1: Yeah, the protagonist. Exactly. You know, everything is fundamentally about you. When you proliferate as many executive agencies as we have and you charge all of them with making rules and they're all presumably in their field because they have an interest in it. I think they all tend and to politically think, appointed yep i think they all tend to think of themselves as the center of the lawmaking universe and to feel justified in doing a whole lot of stuff and it ends up yeah. being
0: if my job is regulating ketchup and that's all i ever do day in and day out yeah i'm probably going to have a lot of opinions about ketchup
1: yep and i think whereas a reasonable person might say okay <laughs> ketchup our, our is ketchup like,
0: regulators unreasonable
1: <laughs> maybe well maybe in this particular regard I'm not going to comment on what they're like outside of, of this arena but I think a, a normal person if you ask them like what's ketchup they might say well it's <laughs> like it's like blended up tomatoes and I don't know spices and salt and sugar and stuff and you'd be like yeah okay that sounds like what ketchup is and you might say, but they,
0: but they hired a bunch of ketchup nerds to define. Yeah. And then you what's ketchup?
1: Up, it's like, oh, well, you know, it can't be this kind of tomato because that tastes completely different. That doesn't have a sweet taste at all. It tastes like this. And so, okay, so it can only we, 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 the varitals. public cannot
0: be misled no. and it's very serious when they are. We've got to send people to jail when they mislead the public about this.
1: Yeah. And so obviously there's more steps to this process, but I do think something like that tends to happen.
0: Well, but it's like, a you know, again, procedural justice. Yeah. We have branches of government that are set up to create laws, and we have branches of government that are set up to enforce those laws. And when yeah. you start pushing one of those powers to the other one, it's probably not going to work properly. There's any number of reasons we could get into why that's the case. We've gotten into a few.
1: Yeah.
0: But what was going on in this SEC case was actually a little bit worse, even what we've been discussing. That's true. Yeah, because well, not only was it a... I hate to call it a usurpation because Congress straight up handed it to them. You know, it's not like the executive took power that they hadn't been asked to take. But we essentially have the executive exercising the role, not just as law creator, not just as the person enforcing the law, you know, an actual executive, but they were actually acting in a judicial capacity as well. They were judge, jury and executioner. So, David, how are they acting in a judicial capacity?
1: So one of the very fun features of a lot of these executive agencies is that they get to establish their own courts. Uh, Article two courts, administrative
0: uh, courts, or you can call them article one courts too. either
1: one. Yeah. But so in this instance in particular, so it'll probably help to talk about it concretely. There's this guy, Jarksy Jarkese, however you say it, that guy (laughs) set up a hedge fund, created it, you know, hired somebody else basically to manage it, as I understand it. Again, didn't. Really drill very deeply into the factual. Background he basically
0: here. committed fraud.
1: Yeah. So, or, the, or rather,
0: is is being accused of committing fraud, and yes. the SEC is investigating him and charging him with fraud, which yeah. they have the option to do either in an Article Three court, a regular district court, right, or in their specially created Security and Exchange Commission courts with their own judges who are employees of the Security and Exchange Commission.
1: Right. So in, I think that's the real key point here. And actually the, the, the circuit court found in favor of the complainant, which was the you know the original defendant, this guy who was accused of fraud, for several reasons. But one of the ones that I think is important is they found that he was deprived illegitimately of his right to a jury trial. And I think you can maybe get a sense of why just from that description employees so that, of the that's SEC that's the 7th amendment right yeah employees of the SEC were the ones who found that there was basis for bringing in action against them heard the trial and then adjudicated it like so somebody working for judge, the judge jury and thing, executioner yeah.
0: they they created the rules that he was violating yep they found him to be or rather you know investigated it and said you know identified him as somebody who had potentially violated those rules so right. people who violate rules then get a right to a a trial right well they get a right to an SEC trial so it was employees of the SEC at every stage
1: right now if that seems fishy it is <laughs> I think
0: happens all the time though yeah they I are think... not the only executive agency with their own tribunal and no and it's funny because even though you know, we called this case a tremendous a huge victory and it is but Interestingly, they didn't say the problem is what you and I have just been talking about. The right. reason he was deprived of his Seventh Amendment rights was because the sort of thing that he was charged with, which is basically fraud, is the sort of law that would ordinarily, under the common law for hundreds and hundreds of years, have entitled him to a jury. Other right. rights, rights created by Congress, they call those public rights, so rights that are not pre existent to the Constitution, yeah. uh, they do not get. That sort of protection, right. congressionally created rights do not.
1: Yeah. And again, that that's probably something we'll have to shelve and, and maybe talk about on another day. And I I think it's this is probably a good time to remind you that, as we said at the beginning, the opinions you're hearing are not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. They are our opinions. On this opinions. one, they are. I think we can probably say that, but...
0: No, we, we've taken a firm stance on non-delegation.
1: No, no, non-delegation, yes. I meant specifically my remark about... Uh, the fishiness of it all. Um, oh,
0: yeah. Fair enough.
1: That's 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 <laughs> me saying that in particular. Maybe maybe at some point the, the Institute can weigh in on that. But anyway, I, I guess we've been dancing around this. We should probably talk about the specific things that the court found and why they found them in yeah, favor so of the complaint.
0: Three, three findings. And yep. we said the first one. First one is that because this was a common law sort of crime that would normally, not crime, but common law sort of cause of action that would ordinarily entitle somebody to a right to a jury trial his Seventh Amendment rights had been taken. Right. There were two other findings the court reached. One of them was the non-delegation issue that we've been referring to. Tell us a little bit about the facts on that one, David.
1: So, so, all right, I'll, I'll quote directly. So they said, we agree with petitioners. And then they, they mentioned, we mentioned already the rights of the jury trial. But the second thing they said, they agreed with the petitioner for Congress unconstitutionally delegated legislative power to the SEC by failing to provide it with an intelligible principle by which to exercise the delegated power. So again, yeah. exactly what I a- And that,
0: that was, we, we alluded to that earlier, that what the intelligible principle they failed to provide was the circumstances in which the SEC should proceed against somebody in a district court versus their administrative court. They didn't right. say when to use each of those courts, they just left it to their discretion. That was an unconstitutional delegation of Congress's power.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it should, again, I hope it's it's going to be evident to listeners why that's the case. Like, as we've already said also, it's not like people never went to court for fraud before the Constitution. It's an old concept. If fraud's been around
0: yeah. for a long, long time. You
1: can you can be tried by a court for that. Now, so the, the traditional way you resolve that then, if you're accused of fraud, is you go to court, you have a trial, jury hears it. it sh- I feel like it should be clear that Congress then saying, no, you know what, there are some times when maybe that doesn't happen. And they don't explain when, how, or why.
0: This agency gets to pick, and we're not going to tell them how to pick.
1: Right. And you, as a citizen, have, Figure it out. have traditionally been <laughs> entitled to the right to be a jury trial for this sort of thing.
0: I always had this before. For thousands of years, we had this before. And yeah. now you're just telling me that this unelected bureaucrat gets to pick whether or not I get that right. Yeah. Based and, on no standards.
1: Right. And yeah, again, I think that, that's crucial, too. Sometimes this will happen. Sometimes this won't happen. We can't tell you when or why or how. That's up to this other guy. Now, hopefully that rings some alarm bells. And yeah, I think it's easy to overlook the importance of a jury trial, but
0: that it's not. Look, I I hear people every day singing the praises of democracy. As if the United States is a democracy, (laughs) the most democratic aspect of our system of government, hands down. I mean, nothing else even comes close. The most democratic aspect of our government is the right to a, a, a trial by jury.
1: Yeah. At the end of the day, the people who decide whether you have committed a crime or not are people like you. Normal people.
0: Or are or, or civilly liable.
1: That, that's true, too.
0: But for for I, common law, causes I, of action.
1: Yes. But I think I like to go with the crime thing because that feels more impactful. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> At the end of the day, majority
0: of our law is civil.
1: <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, though, it's not someone who is, you know, possessed of special privileges because of their expertise or anything else who gets to make that decision. At the end of the day, it's we the people. And I think that's important. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and like you were mentioning earlier, who's going to be a better judge of. Because remember, juries judge fact, not law. Right. They judge what actually happened. But who's going to be a better judge about who's telling the truth or whether or not the, this person actually should have understood this offer to mean whatever, whether or not this person met their burdens under the offer. Somebody who every single day is looking at securities and exchange issues and trying to regulate companies or 12 people who just you know, live out in the community yep. are you know, just reasonable people, everyday people that have a basic understanding of what deals look like, what representations mean.
1: Yeah, and I it, I think that same basic principle is also why it's important that Congress is the one that retains the legislative power. Congress is basically picked by ordinary people, and for the most part, they are fairly ordinary. Well, the people.
0: Ha- the House, I yeah. guess technically that, under Seventeenth Amendment, true. both are, but yes, at least so specifically, in theory.
1: specifically the House of Representatives, yeah. Um, and there's there's lots of people in the House. There's lots of districts. You can pretty easily end up in the House basically just by being a sort of fairly well-known person in your community who people have some degree of confidence in and i think that
0: even without that i mean some (laughs) of the folks in the house of representatives i don't think would inspire confidence from anyone but (laughs) they were still picked by their constituents
1: but something of that kind of relative lack of specificity in the selection process i think encourages a more holistic way of looking at things and i think that's on purpose Congress is supposed to be- They're not elected
0: to a specific purpose. They're yeah. not on the ketchup regulation board. They're no. on the making law board.
1: Right. So now when it comes time to make specific choices about things, you might want to hear from the ketchup nerd, but-
0: Yeah, Congress needs information.
1: Yeah, but you don't necessarily want the ketchup nerd to make all the rules because what if he makes all the rules about ketchup? And that's kind of You what want happens. somebody who can
0: contextualize that this is indeed the ketchup nerd.
1: Right. So he knows, who knows
0: a can... lot about ketchup. But, well, I mean, it's it's sort of like, you know, I don't want to get on the political stuff again, but with a lot of the COVID-19 stuff, people keep saying, you know, trust the science, trust the science. Mm -hmm. And they keep pointing, you know, Dr. Fauci recommends X, Y, Z. Dr. Fauci, I'm not going to give my opinion on him, but he might be a very good doctor if you're only talking to doctors about what are public policy issues. You're going to get recommendations that maximize public health. Yeah. Probably irrespective of other concerns. And that's not to say public health shouldn't be a high priority. Maybe it should be your only priority. But a doctor is probably not going to be the best judge of that because they've only been trained and equipped to exercise judgment about medical issues. Yeah. The most medically advisable thing to do to stop the spread of a virus is to have everybody stay perfectly stone still, not next to anybody for two weeks. I mean, it would vanish if you did that. Yep. But people not really workable. there'd be other undesirable consequences to that.
1: Yeah. You know, and again, if you wanted to make sure if your goal was our country is going to produce the best ketchup, maybe one way you could do that is to make a bunch of rules about how you make ketchup, who has to make ketchup, when you do it, all that sort of thing. It's probably not very useful. And you want somebody who's going to say, I don't think we need this many laws about ketchup.
0: Well, France has got a lot more rules about wine than we do, yep. because France is, I'm sorry, France, but sort of a country of wine nerds. <laughs> so the average legislator who's elected in France is going to be somebody who cares a great deal more about wine regulation yep. than somebody who's elected in the United States.
1: Yep. Yeah. Well, I guess we, we don't need to weigh in on whether that's good or bad, but it's true. Anyway. It's just
0: not American. Yeah. Not that it's th- bad. It might true. be right for them. <laughs>
1: Those people over there that we can just sort of observe from a distance. Uh, I
0: mean, their wine's pretty good.
1: Yeah, I'm not a big wine guy, but you know, (laughs) I'm more of a beer guy. And Bavaria had traditional laws about only making beer with, I think, three ingredients, literally, and they did that to protect the quality of their beer. Arguably, did a pretty good job, but maybe not the most advisable thing in the world that you can never add. It might might make sense
0: if you care a great deal about beer over and above other considerations though.
1: Yeah, like allowing somebody to make a new thing that isn't quite like the beer you know. Like freedom. Yeah, yeah. but be allowed to or sell Or economic prosperity. Right. <laughs> anyway, so that that was the second so that, that's, thing.
0: That's number two, that's the second thing yeah. that it did. Uh, the, the third, well, let's just repeat that because we talked for a while. But <laughs> Second thing that it did was said that because it didn't provide an intelligible principle to decide who was gonna be tried in administrative versus Article Three courts it ran afoul of non delegation doctrine. And then the third thing that the court ruled was that uh, so th- the, these administrative law courts had administrative law judges. Yeah. And these judges had in the past been ruled to be uh, inferior officers of the executive, which is actually a constitutionally defined term. Mm-hmm and constitutionally the president has authority to direct the activity of you know inferior officers that's actually explicitly stated in article 2 of the constitution
1: yeah that's that's his job he's in charge he's in charge of the executive branch people who work for the executive branch are supposed to answer to the president in an ultimate sense.
0: Yeah, and specifically the Constitution says, he shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That means direct the activities of inferior officers.
1: Yeah, so that's sometimes called the take care clause.
0: Yeah, and basically what the court found was that these officers, in order to be removed as judges, had all kinds of provisions, you know, basically like they had to be fired only for cause, which means, you know, you had to do something that was you shouldn't have been doing on the job. It can't just be that the president doesn't think you're doing your job well. You have to have a specific cause for firing. You know, it's, it's like any four because clause in someone's employment contract. People know what that is, right? I think
1: so. But if, if you don't, oftentimes employment contracts will spell out specific things that count as good cause for firing, basically. And sometimes those are yeah. specifically defined. Sometimes there's, you know, existing law about that that they have recourse to. But...
0: And their contract did have that. Yeah. So what the court rules is because they could not be fired at the president's discretion, that was actually depriving the president of his ability to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And the president, because he wasn't taking care that the laws are faithfully executed, was violating the Constitution.
1: Yeah. And so, actually, in the, in this case, it was a double layer of for cause protection. Only specific people that's within right. the SEC can fire these judges and the judges so
0: it had to go through a few different steps before it even got to the president yeah
1: so basically judges have to have cause to be fired and then the people who can find that they had good cause to fire them are themselves protected by a for cause provision so the president could find good cause to fire the people who have the power to find good cause to fire the judges so basically there's a lot of red tape That goes with trying to actually remove one of these judges.
0: Long story short, this ruling on all three of those grounds is probably the single biggest blow to the administrative state that's been dealt since the Roosevelt administration. That's when all this stuff really started. That's when all these alphabet agencies and executive overreach started to proliferate was during the New Deal era. Basically, he bullied the court into accepting his New Deal proposals, and they have done that. For, what, the 80 years since then? Pretty much. That tide may finally be turning. And this case is sort of currently the high watermark on that.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of people are sort of uncomfortable with the idea of getting rid of that on the assumption that that's how we make sure people do things the right way. It's funny that a lot of people who have been critical of the courts for some of these recent decisions have sometimes made reference to the quote-unquote undemocratic character of the courts. And I think the... Well, that's the point of the courts. The,
0: the courts are politically insulated. That's that's true. That's what that's what makes them a court as opposed to Congress or the president. That's
1: true. But it's also, I think, it, it's hugely ironic that in many instances, what they're getting mad at is a decision that takes the rulemaking authority away from an unelected body of bureaucrats and gives it back to Congress to make the rules. Congress, which is actually elected, and by far... David,
0: David discusses this very, very well in his OSHA article. What did we end up calling that?
1: I believe why you're, and then parenthetically, likely, and parenthetically, wrong about the Constitution. I didn't name it that. Somebody... <laughs> To, I think, you know, probably a more interesting title than I gave it, but I don't... Uh,
0: I, I think it's an excellent article. <laughs> we'll probably, we'll try to link that in the description, too. Yeah. I don't know how many links we can put in the description. Oh, uh,
1: we'll see. But I, I do think that's, that's ironic that Congress, which is by far the most directly, quote unquote, democratic element of the government...
0: Other than juries.
1: True. But as far as the people you would think of...
0: Juries literally are a direct democracy. That's it's true. The people themselves determining the outcome. That's true.
1: But the people, if you love
0: democracy, you ought to love jury duty. Like it's really <laughs> if you go around praising democracy, your favorite thing in the world ought to be jury duty.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm not even kidding.
1: But Congress, which, you know, especially <laughs> the House, you you elect these people every two years, if they're doing a bad job, you can get them out very quickly. You should be able to keep track of what your representative specifically, at least is doing. They vote its public record as opposed to these agencies, which are basically shrouded in secrecy. You're never going to know who specifically.
0: Oh, no, they, they published the Federal Register.
1: <laughs> yeah, thousands upon thousands There's of There's 247
0: pages volumes a year. Of the
1: dullest stuff you've... I Okay, I had a job for a few years that, among other things, involved me dealing with some regulations around... Well, my company was trying to make sure we stayed on the right side of the regulatory divide between medicines and cosmetics. And the amount of effort that goes into just trying to make sure you're doing that is kind of staggering, and that's one industry. Yeah. Well, the,
0: the way an agency makes a rule, just to be clear, so there, there's two ways. There's the formal way and the informal way. Yeah. When these were originally set up, they assumed they'd almost always do the formal way and almost never do the informal. Opposite. That was yeah. very optimistic. <laughs> they, they almost never do the formal. They almost always do the informal. So what the informal requires is that when they want a new rule, they, they suggest a rule. And then they open that rule for our public comments. Yeah. And those public comments are usually made by the Hershey Corporation or the Heinz Corporation or people who have a financial interest in commenting because most of us are just too doggone busy to go through yeah. several hundred pages of Federal Register a day. They call them. Several hundred pages a day yeah. is what we have to go through. So stakeholders end up commenting. And then they don't actually have to listen to any of that public comment. They ultimately end up enacting a final rule and that final rule does not have to be really very close to the original rule at all. It just needs to be a logical outgrowth of the proposed rule, which courts have been very permissive in granting. So that's the procedure. Oftentimes it's one guy that's responsible for this thing. It's about the least democratic way of getting a law. Yeah imaginable. I don't wanna I can you can imagine some pretty undemocratic stuff, but it's up there.
1: It's 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 not transparent, certainly. And again, the chief architects are almost never gonna be actual elected officials. It's almost always gonna be someone who is hired to work for one of these agencies. Appointed,
0: yeah. 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 Political appointees. Generally they're they're recommended by a political boss, somebody from the president's party, because the president doesn't know who knows the most about ketchup? Who's going yeah. to be better regulating ketchup? So some political boss in whatever the president's party is says, "Here's the guy you ought to put in," and they end up being highly partisan. It's not great. No, and unlike the courts that are politically insulated.
1: And I think that people, all that aside, leaving aside the practical problems with the way it's currently set up, the way it's currently run, I think a lot of people are worried about the idea that if we get rid of all these things. There's no legal remedy. There's nothing you can do if, say, a company does start selling a bunch of finger sausages, right? That, you know, <laughs> you, Oscar Mayer could start making their hot dogs 100% finger. And if there aren't these regulatory bodies... We don't think
0: Oscar so, Mayer does this. This is not done Yeah, no,
1: no, no, I'm saying I, I mention them specifically because I have confidence that they don't do that. I actually buy some of their products semi-regularly. But I think some people... This is
0: not an ad for Oscar Mayer. Good
1: point. <laughs> We could,
0: or Sizzler. Sizzler or, didn't yeah. pay us Let's any money. Let's make up last an imaginary
1: week. meat company called Schmascer Schmeyer. Now, I think some people are worried that they will start selling 100% finger hot dogs if the regulations go away. That's not the case. Like, you, it's not like there. It'll
0: be 80% at most.
1: <laughs> there are no more than... <laughs> avenues to hold people accountable that aren't reliant on these regulatory bodies and that's i think
0: yeah you could just rely on traditional common law rules yeah. like 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 violation of contract i try i bought what said it was an all beef hot dog it turned out that it was 80 percent finger yeah. that you lied to me i'm gonna sue you yeah
1: and you know there are things at some point we should probably talk
0: products liability yeah, there's it, we should
1: probably talk at some point about torts and how that relates but
0: Well, because, yeah, that's a big thing, too, because once there's a regulation on point, that becomes the regulatory minimum that people have to meet in order to not be negligent for their conduct. If there isn't a regulatory minimum, companies have to act reasonably. You know, they have to use their best judgment to see what's going to cause a harm to their customers. But now, if there's a regulatory minimum, they can do something that they are certain will cause a harm to their customers. And as long as they show that they complied with the regulation. Yeah. They're generally going to win on those lots. So
1: there's there's a thing that people reference a lot, which is that the FDA has standards about various food products and what part per million can be insect parts. So, you know, incidental parts of an insect that may have gotten into like the ice cream machine or whatever. And people will often say, oh, I, I think it's, you know, I don't want to get rid of the rule about insect parts. Now, the way it is currently, if you know that there's some bug in your ice cream, but it's you know, it's not as bad as the regulation says. You know, it's it's below that threshold. You can say we're fully compliant. But if you got rid of that regulation and you knew there were bug parts in your ice cream and that they were going to hurt people, it wouldn't matter. You would still be yeah. potentially vulnerable to suit. And I think people... Whereas
0: without that regulation... So you can say the regulation protects against bug parts. That's not true. Yeah. Because without that regulation... If somebody said that whatever I'm producing is 100% (laughs) non-bug, that's got to be true. Yeah. Whereas with the labeling requirement, with the the regulation, they can still label it 100% non-bug, and then legally that is now true. Yeah. Because because, the regulation says so.
1: Yeah, because non-bug was defined as less than 10 parts per million or something. Right. Anyway, we've probably talked about this for long enough, but...
0: I think so, but any, just to keep you guys appraised, I'm excited. You know, this is probably my pet issue in the law is separation of powers. Lex yeah. Rex Institute is always on the lookout for cases that can bring this sort of litigation, and if if things, you know, if this case, well, even with you know just where we are right now, we are open to a lot of new challenges to the administrative state. So yeah. if you think you have something that. Runs afoul separation of powers from some federal agency. Please call us. We are eager to bring these cases. These are cutting-edge cases. You will be doing a service to your republic, and future generations will be grateful for what you've done.
1: Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <We're
0: gonna laughs> Hopefully that's now. not an overstatement. I don't think it is.
1: No, I, I, I genuinely think that it's at least... At least plausible, and I think that 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 feels big you know this is a this is a genuinely yeah. big deal and i I imagine the SEC is probably going to appeal this to the Supreme Court, but I think there's a they pretty, probably will pretty strong chance that the Supreme Court is going to see it at least substantive like substantially the same way that sort
0: if court it goes the way that the last few non-delegation cases have, I am cautiously optimistic
1: yeah so anyway, something to keep an eye out for. we will update you. If there is more news about this case, it's something that we're going to be paying attention to for sure. And, uh, yeah, hopefully there's more news about that. But with that said, we're going to go now into our last segment. If you've listened to the podcast previously, this has never kept the same name for more than one episode. Some people are calling for us to do that permanently. Are we going
0: to break that tradition today? No, 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 no.
1: (laughs) As long as I can continue to think of new dumb names for this, we're going to try it. So we've gone from the Law Sauna to... What if I
0: really like one of them? Then then will we stick with it?
1: Maybe. Uh, So (laughs) we started with the Law Sauna. What? Oh, geez. What came next? Um,
0: The next one wasn't too bad, as I recall. It takes so hot.
1: uh, Burning something. Burning questions.
0: Yeah, That was it. And then
1: last time it was the Sizzler. And again, we were not sponsored by Sizzler. I just thought it'd be funny. This time around... It's called. If Scissors
0: listening and you want to sponsor us.
1: Yeah, no, we're open. Give us a call. Yeah. (laughs) This time around, it's the kitchen. If you can't take the hot takes, get out of the kitchen.
0: A lot of these are food related.
1: Yeah, well, you know, most most things that people talk about that involve heat are, you know, cooking.
0: But anyway, so
1: (laughs) what there's, you know, I find people's hot takes. I'll try to
0: find my inner Dave Ramsey and respond to these.
1: So we find people's hot takes online about the law. Gordon
0: Ramsey. That's Gordon Dave Ramsey. Ramsey is the financial guy.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> You lost me there, but I was willing to go with that. I was like, ah, okay, maybe that's somebody. Yeah, Gordon, Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay. Ramsey. Gordon That makes more sense. Anyway, we find people's sort of off the cuff, but very confident takes about legal issues online, and I'm going to ask you to weigh in on them. Are, are these real? All right. So we're going to start with this one. This is a Okay, this is, this
0: is from Twitter again, right?
1: Yeah, I think, I think all of them this week are from Twitter. Twitter is just a great source of people really, really confidently yeah. stating things that It seems like
0: that's shouldn't. where you go if you're ignorant about the law. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> don't know about the law, go on Twitter. I think, it's anyway, the,
1: I think it's the character limit. It makes people... The first one is named Ask
0: Esquire.
1: That is this person claiming to be a lawyer? Very possibly. They're not the person with the true hot take here, though. You'll see.
0: Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll read it. So, first person says, I didn't say they would win. I just said that they'd be eligible under the Constitution. Two different things. Okay, I don't know what they're referring to. But second person says... But you aren't eligible to be president of the United States if you aren't nominated by a party. And one of the two major political parties at that. Quit being a... Rude word. um, (laughs) Something I probably shouldn't say on the podcast.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, a Uh, stupid donkey. Okay,
0: I hope people know that parties aren't part of our system of government. In fact, (laughs) Washington famously warned against parties in his farewell address. This is not true. Constitutional qualifications for being president are 35 years of age and a natural-born citizen of the United States. Not being a member of one of the two major parties, that is very wrong
1: Yeah, and, and not I, at all correct. I think it, it bears mentioning that it'd be very odd if you did have to be a member of the two major parties because, A, you know, in, at least theoretically at the beginning of the country, we didn't have major parties. We weren't supposed to have parties. And B, what what this person, sorry, go ahead. I just want to say the de facto major parties have changed multiple times in both name and platform.
0: So difficult. What, What this person probably means is that you aren't eligible to get onto the ballot in some states without that's being true. a member of a major political party. That is true. Typically, they have like a minimum number of, of votes you had in the last election as the threshold for whether or not you can automatically get on the ballot in the next election. Otherwise, you have to get signatures or what have you. But that, again, that's just to qualify for the ballot. You can be elected without being on the ballot.
1: Yep, that's a good point, too. So anyway, the ballots right.
0: are all state run. That's not it's not a federal requirement at all.
1: All right. But so I I think we can regard that one as conclusively resolved. This person's wrong. Great relief to me. Very wrong. I was very concerned about it because, you know, I'm I'm actually not registered. I've I've traditionally registered independent. Sometimes that doesn't favor you as far as your state election rules go, closed primaries and such. But relief to know that if I decided to run for president, being registered independent would not hurt me.
0: Well, are you a natural born citizen?
1: I think so. Pretty sure. Unless my parents are lying.
0: Well, that's not not as straightforward of an issue as you might think. And that was actually one of the issues we had to cancel for today's podcast. So you might yeah. hear about that next week.
1: Yeah, we, we may be talking about that. There's a, a pending Supreme Court case that will delve into some citizenship issues that could be an interesting topic for the future. Anyway, let's move on to the next one, though. And this one is going to require a little bit of explanation. Um, you may not have seen this in the news. It became briefly viral I think most people have forgotten about it already. But these people on, I think, a Delta flight, members of a choir, somebody got a guitar out, started playing the guitar. Members of this choir who were also on the flight stood up and started singing in their seats. People videotaped it. Some were upset about it. Some were not. But (laughs) that's the context. I I personally say I would find that pretty irritating. I I would ask people Well, it depends what they're singing. Well... For me, it mostly doesn't. I don't want to hear you sing on oh. a flight. I basically just want to do everything in my power to try to ignore the fact that I'm on a plane. I hate flying and just, you know, sort of tune it out in general.
0: But, well, you can pretend you're at a concert. That makes it easier to tune out. Eh,
1: it probably depends. I'm sure on the what acoustics
0: they're... aren't great, though. No. Actually, I know the acoustics aren't great. I've been on flights before.
1: <laughs> All right. So, you know, we're learning something new about you. You have flown on planes. I, anyway. I
0: have. That's true.
1: So this is someone talking about that.
0: Does that airline accept government money? This is Twitter again. Yeah. Uh, if I so, if the thing. airline is allowing this behavior, this also means the government endorses this, thus violating the separation of church and state guaranteed in the First Amendment. Oh, is my gosh. True? We we I think it was <laughs> last week, although I'm not, that was last week, right? That we talked about, no, that was two weeks ago. That we did That we did establishment clause. Yeah. I,
1: yeah, I think that was two weeks ago.
0: Ah. Uh, No part of this is right. The the mere fact they get government money does not make them a state actor or a quasi-state actor. Having a, I assume the song had religious lyrics, but having a song with religious lyrics, even if the entity is a, a state actor or a quasi-state actor, does not make it a state endorsement of religion. The fact that private citizens, without the direction of the airline, were performing this song would also, even if they were a quasi-government actor or a government actor, mean that this speech was not endorsed by the state. No part of this is correct. I don't know why anybody would think this is correct. <laughs> Ab- awful, absolutely awful I to be Gordon Ramsay, you know, here. <laughs> dreadful i I've, I've never seen legal reasoning like this before i can't believe it
1: i had no idea you were such a talented impressionist
0: oh <laughs> thank you yes that's one of my <laughs> i missed my true calling
1: yeah all right so i think we can regard that one as conclusively answered as well all right let's see i've, I've got a couple more here and then we're gonna wrap up
0: and this is from twitter as well you got to find some of these that aren't from twitter yeah David. no no,
1: no. We, we will have some that aren't from twitter it's just very fertile ground this week they're all twitter
0: this one has five hundred and forty-five retweets. Okay, everyone shouldn't have the right to a fair trial when it's a known <laughs> fact that they're guilty. Oh my gosh! Now, People retweeted this, that. That is. I. This is not channeling Gordon well, Ramsay. That is absolutely horrendous and abhorrent.
1: And uh, I think what you're you're missing. <laughs> so the five hundred forty-five retweets. You're missing the twelve point seven thousand likes. What uh, the heck? That
0: is very bad. Okay. I think, How? I think what... How would you... uh, First of all, how would you know for a fact somebody's guilty if they haven't had a fair trial?
1: That was exactly what I was going to say. This may be what we call a contradiction in terms.
0: Gosh. And and even if... Okay. Even if you do know, if you know, if this... The commenter, the person making the Mm -hmm. tweet knows for a fact the person's guilty, why should the person making the tweet be an empowered entity to send somebody to jail.
1: Well, you see- Who's the
0: person making the call of whether or not we know it for a fact? Is it we the people making the call? Because that's what a trial is, is it's a formal proceeding in which we the people, specifically 12 of us, can make that call.
1: Well, I, as I, I, you may be overlooking the fact that better a thousand innocent men be found guilty than one guilty man go free. I think that's how that saying goes, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean-
1: <laughs> Evidently anyway.
0: Ah, uh, this is, uh, honestly, it, it's a little bit upsetting that anybody thinks this. Yeah, oh, Because this absolutely. is antithetical to the entire concept of the rule of law. Uh, this person's basically, well...
1: Saying something real bad. And
0: Yeah, saying to, something real bad. To sort of... <laughs> I, I, think, I think we're going to need more than a dollar a day for this one. Yeah. To, I think I think that it's, it's going to take maybe $5 a day to keep this person off Twitter.
1: Yeah, that's lexrex.org slash donate. Yeah. To, this, anyway,
0: this, I, I find this to be a horrendously despicable and monstrous thing to believe.
1: Yeah, That's, to take a, a more serious t- tone on this for a second, punishing people at law is a very serious thing. Like
0: you're taking away people's rights. Yeah, the way the, the most way, important thing yeah. that we have.
1: The way yes, the way you're punished is typically by deprivation of your quite literally your liberty. You're not free to go places that you want to go, do things you want to do. And the way you enforce that is with the threat of deadly violence. When you do that, you need to be as sure as possible that you have come to the conclusion fairly, openly, and well. The way you don't do that is dispensing with trials. That is no. the last way to guarantee that you're making the right decisions.
0: So Everybody has a best case. Yeah. Even, look, look, even if every single person in the country is willing to sign a stipulation saying that we know this person's guilty, every single person in the country is willing to sign that, including the person accused, because they, until proven guilty, are still, remember, one of we the people. Yep. So let's say everybody, including that person, is willing to sign that stipulation. They should still get a trial because a trial isn't just whether or not you did it. A trial is whether or not there were mitigating factors in doing it. A trial is whether or not you have defenses against whatever the thing is. A a trial considers the circumstances in which you did something. There's always a best case that can be given for somebody, even if that person's guilty, even if they enter a guilty plea.
1: Yep, and that's another reason. They
0: deserve to have a right to a trial.
1: Yeah, and another reason why... It's important that you have access to representation. You know, we've, our courts have come to the conclusion that that's a basic right when you're accused of something, there's access to counsel and counsel will help you make that best case. So again, yeah, it's an encouragement, you know, doesn't need to be us, but we'd be happy for it to be us. When you're in legal trouble, it's often very worth your time to find counsel. And we in particular- Almost always. will do everything we can to make that affordable, if not free, if we can- And to those of you who don't currently need help, you can help us do that by donating or, you know, various other ways, too. But consider it. Anyway, And we
0: we get a lot of calls where people don't end up hiring us. They just do a free 30 minute consultation. Ask, you know, what are my options here? What are my legal rights? We're perfectly happy to do that. Yeah. You know, we're not going to pressure you into hiring us. We are.